Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today we have headlines from the End Times, but first, staff evangelist James Collins and Bodie Hodge shatter the myth of evolution. Recently, a group of top scholars collaborated on a book designed to shatter the myth of evolution. The book is called Glass House, and my guest today is Bodie Hodge, the general editor of the book. Bodie is a speaker, writer, and researcher at Answers in Genesis. He is a regular speaker at the Creation Museum, and he has written or co-written several books, including Glass House, the book that we're going to be talking about today. Bodie, welcome. Thanks for joining me on the program today. Hey, it's great to be on the show. Hey, before we get started talking about the book, there may be some listeners who are not familiar with Answers in Genesis. Tell me about your ministry. Well, we are a Bible-upholding ministry. Basically, we believe in the authority of Scripture from the very first to the very last verse. Now, what a lot of people may associate with us is the world-famous Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. Incredible attractions here in northern Kentucky, just south of Cincinnati. Both are amazing places you can spend a whole day there. They're wonderful attractions. Well, I visited the Ark Encounter a couple of years ago. It is incredible. How did Answers in Genesis come to build a full-size replica of Noah's Ark in a field there in Kentucky? (laughs) Well, a lot of work and a lot of planning, probably the way Noah did it. (laughs) It didn't take quite as long as Noah did. (laughs) Oh, my. Just imagine us trying to buy all that wood now with the way prices are crazy. One of the reasons that we picked this particular area, the Cincinnati area, is we are within two-thirds of the U.S. population one-day drive. So a huge portion of people can get here easily from just about any direction. Wow. Well, it is a massive, awesome sight to see. I highly recommend, if nobody's been to the Ark Encounter, that they put that on their list of things to go do. Let's talk, Bodie, about the book Glass House. You, along with your father-in-law, Ken Ham, are the general editors of the book. And you also contributed, I believe, seven chapters to the book. Yeah, probably quite a bit in here. (laughs) I finished reading it last week, and it's fantastic. Now, the title is Glass House, and the subtitle is Shattering the Myth of Evolution. Would you explain the title, Glass House? If you think of this evolutionary worldview that's been imposed onto people, it really is like a house full of glass. It's so easy to shatter, but a lot of people don't know that it can just be destroyed that easily. And so we wanted to put a title like that to really grab people's attention. Of course, the subtitle kind of explains it further, but we want people to realize that just because there's a lot of arguments floating around out there for evolution, just because we've been hit with it left, right, and center, doesn't mean it isn't fragile. And so that's what we wanted to do in this book, dive into those arguments, deal with those, and get right to it. I personally went to a secular university, and I was taught evolution was fact, even though it is the so-called theory of evolution. But you make a case in the book Glass House that evolution is not really a theory. For the sake of clarity, what is evolution? When we're talking about evolution, we're talking about the overall molecules-to-man type of evolution, which is a multiple stage here. We're talking cosmological evolution. We're talking geological evolution, that is millions of years, chemical evolution, and then biological evolution. A lot of times when people hear evolution, they think you came from apes or ape-like creature. And yeah, that includes that. But we're talking about the whole thing here, what evolution is. And so when we talk about evolution, that's what we're trying to dive into. And we're dealing with all the arguments surrounding that major premise there. Couldn't you say that evolution is a religion? Absolutely it is, and a lot of people don't realize that. In fact, it is one of the main tenets of the secular forms of humanism. 
Now, I know I throw that out there, and people are like, well, what is that? Well, humanism, in its broadest sense, is any religion that elevates man's ideas to supersede God and his word. And if you think about that from a big picture, that means all religions out there in the world, every one of them, one way or another, are humanistic. They have utilized ancient sages or new ideas, whether they're atheists, whether they're Hindus, whether they're Buddhists, whether they're secular humanists, they've all elevated man's ideas to take you away from God and his word. Now, in our culture, the secular forms are what dominate, whether it's atheism or agnosticism or even what people say they're not religious. That's a fancy way of saying you're a secular form of humanist. And evolution goes side by side with all this, this idea of leave God out of it and let's see where everything came from. This naturalistic and materialistic worldview is part of that. Since evolution is a religion, Charles Darwin would have to be one of the main prophets of that religion. Who was Darwin and what was his role in the creation versus evolution debate and why are people still talking about him today? That's actually a big question. Charles Darwin was not actually a scientist. He was actually a theologian. He mm -hmm. was trained as a theologian. Of course, he walked away from any semblance of Christianity as he dove into an evolutionary worldview. Now, Charles Darwin did not come up with evolution. That is a common misconception. Evolution is actually one of the ancient Greek myths. If you go back to the Epicureans, Paul argued against the Epicureans and Stoics in Acts chapter 17, actually. Right. Those mm -hmm. Epicureans were the first evolutionists. They believed everything evolved from very tiny particles that they called atoms. That's actually where we get our modern term, Adam. But that view just pretty much died off for a long time. It was revived in France with Jean Lamarck, as well as Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin. They were both evolutionists. Now, what Darwin did is he came along and he tried to take a mechanism that was actually developed by a creationist named Ed Blythe, and he named it natural selection, said maybe mm -hmm. natural selection will lead to evolution. And so that's what made Darwin popular. That's what made him grow. Now, most evolutionists today kind of disagree with Darwin on a lot of those aspects. They don't say it was just natural selection. They want to add mutations or something else to it. But he's the one that caused evolution to explode into our modern society. Well, in the book Glass House, you write that creation versus evolution is really an authority debate. Since we already have established that it's a religion, it's a really a religious debate, not a science debate, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. The key is, are we going to trust God and His Word as the absolute authority, which I encourage people to do. That's what we should be doing, because there is no greater authority than God. But when people reject God and His Word and dive over here to an evolutionary worldview, whether it's Big Bang, millions of years, or evolution, they're elevating man's ideas to be that ultimate authority, and that is the religion of humanism. So we do see that tension. We do see that battle in there. And it is not a science debate. A lot of people are confused over that. You know, I've had people tell me, oh, but Bodhi, Big Bang, that's science, or millions of years, revolution, that's science. So it's science versus the Bible. But it's not. And here's what I can tell you about science. I've actually got a science background. I got mm -hmm. a bachelor's and master's in mechanical engineering, and I specialize in material science. But science is something that is observable and repeatable. If someone hasn't observed it or repeated it, it's not good observational science or experimental science. No one has ever observed or repeated the Big Bang. No one's ever observed or repeated millions of years. And nobody's ever observed or repeated the changing of a single-celled organism like an amoeba into a cat. We've never observed it. Right. So that's not science. So we need to start training people to start spotting what science is and what it isn't. Does science contradict the Bible? No, not at all. Science comes out of a biblical worldview where God upholds things in a particular way, and he's promised to do so. For example, in Genesis 8:22, God said that he's going to uphold the world a particular way. That's what makes observable, repeatable science possible. 
Now, in the secular worldview, they borrow that science from us, and they sometimes want to try to equate science with evolution to try to trick people into believing some of these secular ideas like Big Bang or evolution are science, but they really aren't. Isn't it true, Bodie, that throughout the centuries, many well-known scientists such as Isaac Newton were strong Christians? That's right. They believe the Bible without question. In fact, most fields of science were developed by Bible-believing Christians. You know, you might think of Gregor Mendel, Pascal, there was Robert Boyle, there was hosts of these guys. And it made sense because they were thinking God's thoughts after him as they studied the world to do these observable and repeatable type of processes. And in fact, we still see some wonderful scientists nowadays that are operating on a biblical worldview, coming up with incredible things. You know, I think of Dr. Stuart Burgess, who helped redesign the bicycle, and England all of a sudden dominated in the Olympics. Or I think of Raymond Damadian, who invented the MRI. I mean, these guys are doing some incredible work, and they're doing it standing on the Scripture as the absolute authority. In the book Glass House, you write about those who try to make evolution fit their beliefs. What is theistic evolution? I look back in my past, and there was a time when I was starting to try to make some of that myself, so I actually struggled with this. So it's kind of a personal issue even to me. But theistic evolution, even some of these others, like progressive creation or day age or gap or cosmic temple, these are all different ways that Christians try to take millions of years, Big Bang and evolutionary ideas, and mix it with their Christianity. I used to struggle with that myself, trying to put the two together. And you can't put millions of years between Jesus and Adam. So people have to go back before Adam, and all of a sudden, Creation Week, that's where they try to throw this millions of years and reinterpret Genesis chapter 1. But big picture, that's the problem. They're taking a tenet from an entirely different religion, and they're trying to mix it with their Christianity. You end up running into theological problems, science problems, you name it. The order of creation, for example, is different from what we read in Scripture, from what the secular world would teach. But here's a big problem. If you have millions and billions of years there before Adam, that idea of millions and billions of years comes from the rock layers. Well, you look in those rock layers, they're full of death, animals eating right. other animals. We see cancer and tuberculosis, just massive amounts of extinction and death. And if we have millions of years of that death in there before Adam sinned, well, now we have a problem, because at the end of the creation week, God declared everything very good. Right. In Deuteronomy 32.4 says every work of God is perfect. We expected a perfect creation, not one full of death and suffering, especially from a God of life. You see, death is the punishment for sin, and that's the very reason why we need a Savior. And there is a relationship between human sin and animal death. When Adam sinned, God sacrificed animals. We saw that with Abel offering fat portions, Noah offering sacrifices, Noah, the Israelites, and that's all pointing to Jesus Christ, who's the ultimate sacrifice. He is the finisher and perfecter of our faith. And so we don't want to disconnect Genesis from the gospel and all this either. Theistic evolution, then, is an attempt really to force evolution into the Bible. Doesn't the gap theory also do just that? That was probably one of the first ways people tried to reinterpret the Bible to put that millions of years in there. They said, okay, we got all this millions of years of rock layers. They didn't know what to do with it. What they should have done was recognize that those rock layers came from the flood of Noah's day, which were laid down after Adam's sin, which makes sense of the death then. But instead, they put it in Genesis chapter 1, and they thought, where do we put it? They didn't want to deal with it. So a Scottish theologian named Thomas Chalmers, he said, how about we do this? Let's take Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, and let's just put a big gap there and put all this millions of years of rock layers in there, assume it's all right there, that way we don't have to worry about it. But of course, you still run into that problem of having death before sin. That's a gigantic problem. Plus, it also deletes what the flood did. 
if all those rock layers are evidence of millions of years, then all of a sudden you can't have a global flood. Otherwise, a global flood would come in and tear up those rock layers and lay down new ones. So they started appealing to a local flood. In fact, anytime people put millions of years into Genesis chapter 1, they usually demote the flood to be a little bitty local flood in the Middle East. Would you also explain to us the day-age theory? Day-age or progressive creation. Progressive creation is a specific type of day-age. They basically take the days of creation and they stretch them out to be millions and billions of years long. In fact, that was the view that actually influenced me many years ago. I actually tried to struggle with, let's take day three, stretch it out, day four, stretch it out. Mm-hmm. But of course, you got problems with it because you'd have millions of years of plants without the sun, you see? <laughs> so you have all sorts of different issues because the sun wasn't made till day four, plants were made on day three. So people start doing some finagling. They say, okay, well, let's stretch them out to be millions and billions of years long. But then they start rearranging the days and the things on the days. So basically, it just gets very convoluted. Once again, though, death is before sin when you put the millions of years in there, even with the day age or the, or the progressive creation view. The Bible tells us that Noah took two of every kind of animal with him on the ark, and we know that species reproduce within the boundaries of their own kind. A dog cannot be mated to a cat. However, there are variations within a species, so would you unpack the difference in variations and evolution for us? This goes back to the word kind. That's the Hebrew word men. M-I-N, mean, sometimes is the way it's pronounced, but it basically means a kind or a sort. Now, that's different from our modern word species. You know, we throw the word species out there all the time. We've got a host of dog species, for example, several different wolf species, red wolf and so forth. You've got coyotes and several species of coyotes and dingoes. All the domestic dogs are all considered one species. But the thing is, there's only one dog kind. Mm -hmm. So Noah only required two dogs on board Noah's Ark. He only required two cats on board the Ark. All the cats we have today came from those two cats on board the Ark. All the dogs we have today came from the two dogs on board Noah's Ark. Whether it's the wolves, the coyotes, the dingoes, or the chihuahuas, or whatever. Same sort of thing with the cats, the lions, the tigers, the bobcats, even the house cats. They can all ultimately interbreed with each other. So they're part of that same kind. So when we think about that, there's a boundary within those kinds. We don't see dogs changing into cats or cats changing into elephants and so forth. There's that boundary within that. And that's a good thing. It's nice to see that type of variation. In fact, when we look at the human kind, we all don't look like Adam. We all don't look like Eve. And I'm glad you guys don't all look like me. I got a face for radio. (laughs) Uh, I'm not kidding. (laughs) That's why I'm uh, on the radio, so I'm with you. (laughs) But yeah, we see that variation, and that's a good thing within the human kind. But we don't see humans changing into apes. We don't see humans changing into sheep. So there are those boundaries, those limitations within that, which is in stark contrast to an evolutionary worldview. In an evolutionary worldview, they have to have the millions and billions of years of time to try to get some sort of single-celled organism to try to get to man and dogs and cats. But you have to add information to the genome. You have to add information for eyes, for a circulatory system, for a skeletal system, for a nervous system, for a heart, for lungs, and so forth. We're not seeing those types of changes. What we're seeing are what we call the horizontal changes. Some dogs have longer hair, shorter hair, longer snout, variant size of their ears, and so forth. We're not seeing those supposed evolutionary onward and upward changes. Bodie, what about these so-called missing links like Lucy? Are there missing links that prove human evolution? Out in the secular world, they have to have some sort of missing link as they look back into those rock layers. 
a lot of times what they'll do, they'll find a human or they'll find an ape, and they'll say, well, it's slightly varying. It doesn't quite look like us today, so therefore it's some sort of a link in between. And so they're trying to find these missing links. But here's what we find. We find apes. We find humans. There's three ways people actually make a missing link, though. The first is you take a human and you dress it up to try to look like an ape. Right. A Neanderthal is a great example of that. They're just humans. They wore clothes. They buried their dead. They made flutes. They worshiped God. All the boundaries of a Neanderthal are within the human population today. The second way to make a missing link is you take an ape and then you try to make it look like a human. A great example of that is Lucy. That is the Australopithecine afarensis. Don't let that name scare you. It's just a fancy way of saying southern ape. It's an ape, but people try to make it look like a human, but its features are right there. It's almost like a variant form of a pygmy chimpanzee. The third way to make a missing link is to fake it. There are people out there who fake it. They've rejected God and his word. Why be honest? Why tell the truth? And so they manipulate the data, whether they saw stuff up and change it and adjust it, or whether they file things down, and we see people try to mix human features with ape features. Sometimes it's done intentionally, sometimes it's not done intentionally. Sometimes I think there's honest researchers out there doing it, but because of their worldview, they're trying to drive certain things. But the point is, all those links, they're just missing. You write about the moral implications of the religion of evolution. What are some of those moral implications? Well, if you think about it, religion affects the way people live. You know, as Christians, we want to love people, we want to care for them, we want to see them do better, we want to see them educated. But at the same time, when you look at different other world religions, their values are not always the same as Christianity. And in many cases, when they start to live out their values, they start living their lives that way, all of a sudden it becomes a horrible outcome. Charles Darwin, in his book in 1871, The Descent of Man, said that the Caucasians should exterminate or would no doubt exterminate all the other savage races throughout the world. And he was assuming everybody who wasn't a Caucasian be put in that savage category. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, that affected people. Ernst Haeckel was one of Darwin's biggest supporters. He took this idea to the Germanic peoples and started training them that Caucasians and certain ones within the Caucasians were superior. And guess what? That led to Nazism. Whether it's World War One, which saw some of the pan-Germanism playing out, or World War II, where you saw it full scale, where they were attacking Jews, Poles, Slavs, you name it. They were trying to wipe out everybody who wasn't in that superior race, according to Darwin. The Nazis and Hitler himself were diehard evolutionists. They were living out this religion of evolution in their day-to-day lives. It really had become part of their worldview and part of the way they lived. And look what it did. And they're not the only ones. A lot of people even today have been affected by it. Look at the number of babies that have been aborted all across the world in the name of an evolutionary worldview where people have argued that the baby growing in the mother's womb is going through its evolutionary stages and can be aborted. It's terrible to hear those arguments, but people still utilize some of those arguments even today. It just breaks my heart to see that sort of thing. So it's all around us. We still see the implications of this worldview. What we really need to do is be praying that people get back to God and his word, trust his word from the very first to the very last verse, and all of a sudden you'll get a whole new mindset on this. My guest has been Bodie Hodge, and we've been talking about the book Glass House, Shattering the Myth of Evolution. Bodie, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. God bless you and keep up the great work. Pastor Larry and James Collins are looking at headlines from the end times here on Watchmen on the Wall. Welcome to Headlines from the End Times. 
In the days of the Old Testament prophets, God said to appoint a man to stand guard on the wall. The watchman would scan the horizon for signs of danger. When an enemy was spotted making advances on the city, the watchman would sound an alarm. Each day we see more and more signs that point to the soon return of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we here on Watchman on the Wall seek to make sense of the nonsense and sound the alarm of the truth of Bible prophecy in current events. Our first story comes to us from Harvard University where Greg Epstein, an atheist and humanist chaplain who says he doesn't look to God but to people for answers, has been elected by his colleagues as the newest president of the Harvard chaplains. Epstein, age 44, was unanimously elected to the presidency of the university's organization of chaplains by more than 40 chaplains from some 20 different faith and spiritual traditions, even though he is an atheist. Well, this shows just how far Harvard has fallen from its founding with its original purpose to train pastors for the ministry. John Harvard would be horrified by the actions of the school that bears his name. This is another example of the growing movement within the United States, especially among millennials and Gen Z, toward an abandonment of our Christian foundation and a move to hardline secularization. In the past, places like Harvard, who have long abandoned any sort of Christian foundation, would at least keep up a charade of acceptance of Christianity. Many of these groups now actively and openly share their disdain for Christianity and their complete acceptance of the secular worldview. We need to get on our knees and pray for our young people in America to turn to God and abandon the hopeless worldview of secularism. We go now to New York City for our next story, where comic book publisher DC Comics, who last month announced that the character of Robin was a bisexual, has now announced that Superman is gay. The new Superman, Jonathan Kent, who is the son of Clark Kent and Lois Lane, has begun a romantic relationship with a male friend. The same-sex relationship is just one of the ways that Jonathan Kent is proving to be a different Superman than his famous father. Since his new comic book series, Superman, Son of Kal-El, began in July, this new Superman has combated wildfires caused by climate change, thwarted a high school shooting, and protested the deportation of refugees in Metropolis. This is just one more example of how DC Comics has ruined their characters to please woke liberals who don't even buy comics. The left has ruined comics. As a matter of fact, woke liberals ruin everything they touch. They have ruined professional sports when they refuse to stand for the national anthem. They ruined the Boy Scouts when they forced them to include homosexuals and girls. They ruined American history by burning museums and tearing down statues. They have ruined movies, television, and music with the filth they peddle. And don't get me started on how they are destroying our government and our country. It's heartbreaking how much damage the woke left has done to the United States. Our next story is related to our previous story and comes to us from Florida, where the leaders of a public school in southeastern Florida took elementary-aged children on a field trip to a gay bar. School board member Sarah Leonardi announced via Twitter she took students from Wilton Manors Elementary School in Broward County to Rosie's Bar and Grill, a local gay bar. Leonardi said she was honored to chaperone the trip to the incredible bar. 
She wrote, the students and I had a fun walk over and learned a lot about our community. Well, once again, this is another example of woke liberals pushing their agenda. Only this time they are pushing it on elementary school children. However, this incident has caused some backlash. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was outraged and upset over the field trip. So were parents in the school district. One mom said, I remember when school field trips were a butterfly world, Bonnet House, or the museum. Why are they taking our elementary kids to a gay bar? The answer to that mom's question is simple. This is all part of their evil agenda to indoctrinate our young people. If you think our country is going downhill, our next story shows that it just slid a little further down. A Vermont public high school homecoming football game recently turned into a, quote, drag ball, end quote. At the halftime show, the drag ball was held with a mix of students and faculty members parading in gowns, wigs, and makeup, and a big crowd in rainbow colors cheered them on. This incident happened at a public high school, and faculty joined in. According to the Associated Press, about 30 students and faculty members from Burlington High School dressed as drag queens and kings walked out onto the field, and the crowd chanted, Drag Ball. Andrew Lavallee, an English teacher and advisor for the Gender Sexuality Alliance at the school, came up with the idea for the event. He joined the students on the makeshift runway, dressed in a Shakespearean burgundy gown and wig. This country has gone mad. Who would have ever thought we would live in the United States where a football coach would be fired for praying with students after a Friday night football game, but it is perfectly acceptable for this school district in Vermont to hold this type of event that promotes perversion. God help this country. We want to end this edition of Headlines from the End Times on a positive note. Every once in a while, we win a battle in the culture war. And in Virginia, a judge just handed down a ruling that is definitely a victory. The judge ordered a Virginia school teacher to reinstate an elementary school teacher who was placed on leave after he criticized a policy that would require him and other teachers to use preferred names and pronouns of trans-identified students. Byron Tanner Cross, a physical education teacher at Leesburg Elementary School, was put on administrative leave not long after he expressed his opposition to the proposed pronoun policy at a Ludon County School Board meeting. Judge James E. Plowman of the 20th Judicial Circuit of Virginia wrote that putting Cross on leave was extreme and an unconstitutional action since the teacher's words, even if controversial, were nevertheless permissible. Thank the Lord for a judge with some common sense. If a parent wants to dress their little boy up like a little girl, that in itself does not make that child a girl. He is still a boy. It is child abuse when parents force another gender on a child, but when they do, the rest of the world shouldn't be forced to go along with their delusion. Well, that will wrap up this edition of Headlines from the End Times. For Dr. Larry Spargimino, this is James Collins leaving you with the words of the Apostle Paul, who said in Ephesians 5, 15, and 16, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. 
Today we have three resources that will help you shatter the myth of evolution. The books Panorama of Creation by Dr. Carl Baugh, Glass House by Bodie Hodge, and the DVD Men Walked with Dinosaurs by Michael Hoggard. Get all three resources for a gift of $35 or more when you call 1-800-652-1144. Or you can order online, swrc.com. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.